0: Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians, and hopefully my voice will make it today. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to put my extra eyes on today. So I can see y'all better. No, actually, I can't see you as well with these on. But I can see that better with these on. <laughs> All right, Colossians chapter two. Colossians 2. For I want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Wow, what was that? It's awesome. <laughs> That's cool. Okay. For I want you to know, if you can make that that delay, it's that delay that gets me. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you... Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, nor regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. And let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask God that you would, by the power of your spirit, cause this truth, cause your word, cause the scripture and the glorious gospel of Christ Lord, to change us and transform us. Lord, to conform us to the image of the Son for your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Colossians chapter 2. Paul begins this chapter, or this chapter begins with this statement from Paul. For I want you to know What a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So he talks about this great conflict. And if we look back up in verse 29 of chapter 1, let me read this to you, verse 29 of chapter 1, one verse above this. Paul says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. That word striving there is the same word as this word conflict. So Paul talked about this conflict that he had for the saints. And he talked about a striving in prayer, an agony in prayer. And this is what he's talking about. He's talking about this striving in prayer for the saints that they would know their salvation, that they would understand what has happened to them in Jesus Christ. And specifically his conflict is that they would know their salvation and out of that knowledge and out of that understanding of who God is and who Christ is and what has happened to them, what has transpired by them being born again that they would experience encouragement. He says that their hearts may be, that your hearts may be encouraged. He wants them to experience love, that they would be knit together in love, that their encouragement would grow as they are being knit together in love. That is their love for God, their love for one another, that originates from God's love for them. So God poured his love into our hearts, and from that love of God that was poured into our hearts, we can now love God and we can now love one another. In fact, the Bible is consistent in teaching that if indeed God has poured his love into our hearts, then we will love God and we will love one another. Or John, John pins it this way in his letter in 1 John. He says, if you say that you love God but have hatred for your brother, then you're a liar and the love of God is not in you. Why does he say that? He says that because if God has indeed poured his love into your heart, then that love is not only going to be returned to God, that love is going to be extended to, to those around you. This is consistent with the answer Jesus gave when he was asked this question. Master, what is the greatest commandment? And he said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So for God to love us is for us to love God and for us to love our neighbor. So Paul says, I have this conflict. There is this striving within me that you would come to experience encouragement in your hearts, that you would come to experience love as you are being knit together, that that you would experience full assurance, that you would attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, full assurance. There are so many Christians who walk around without full assurance, who somehow think that it's actually uh, a good thing, that it's an act of humility that we are not sure of our salvation. But the Bible is very clear. In fact, in 1 John, John says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible wants us to know that we have eternal life. The Bible doesn't want us to go through life. God doesn't want us to go through life hoping that we're going to make it to heaven. God wants us to go through life knowing and understanding what he has given to us in Jesus Christ. He wants us to have full assurance of our salvation, full assurance of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And this was Paul's conflict, that these believers would experience that full assurance. And how are they going to experience that full assurance? They're going to attain to that, to the riches of that, through understanding, through knowledge, the knowledge of God. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. So we can have knowledge that puffs us up, makes us arrogant. But the knowledge of God will never make us arrogant. The knowledge of God will humble us. Because as I grow in the knowledge of God, I am able to see God for who he is. And if I'm able to see God for who he is, then I am better able to see who I am compared to God. And I become like Isaiah who falls to the ground as dead and says, I am a man of unclean lips. So the knowledge of God doesn't make us arrogant, it doesn't puff us up. The knowledge of God brings us to this place of humility. It it enables us to hold our salvation in its proper place. It enables us to have full assurance and full confidence, not in pride or arrogance, but in utter humility because of what God has done for us in Christ. And that knowledge of God and that humility then produces thankfulness. It produces thanksgiving in our heart. And so I become a person who is eternally thankful to God for what he has done for me. It doesn't make me want to go out and live a sinful life. It makes me want to live a holy life. It causes me to be grieved when my life gets off track from the way of righteousness. It doesn't heap condemnation on me, but it does convict me. There is a difference. God doesn't want us to feel condemned, but if we depart from the paths of righteousness, the Holy Spirit in His grace and mercy and goodness will convict us so that we will come back to the path So the knowledge of God, attaining to the knowledge of the mystery of God, Paul writes, both of the Father and of Christ. And in that knowledge of God, in that understanding, he said there are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There in the Father and in Christ are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because the Father and Christ are one. That is the wisdom and the knowledge of God of God, hidden there. The proverb says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the honor of kings to search out a matter. And the Bible says that God has made us kings and priests. And He's given us the honor to search out the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ, that are in the Godhead. And so this is Paul's conflict. He says, this is my great conflict that you would know, that you would be encouraged, that you would have full assurance of understanding in the wisdom and knowledge of God and in your salvation in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 4, Paul says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So in these verses, Paul begins in verse 4, and he says, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now, The things that we experience, the things that could possibly deceive us, the things that could possibly persuade us, they're not new arguments. You realize Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes. He said there's nothing new under the sun. So the things that the enemy uses to deceive us, the things that the world uh, tries to persuade us of, that are contrary to God and contrary to his truth. They're not new. Technology may be new. You know, you might have a new iPhone. You might have a a new laptop. You might have the latest and the greatest technology. But, But what we're talking about here is not anything that's new. What Paul is writing to the Colossians about is not Anything different than what we experience today, <clears throat> I think this is I think this is really easy for us to see if you if you stop and think about the season that we're in right now, just think about the political season. think about the last especially the last year, all the messages you've been bombarded with, all the promises, all the arguments of why you should do this, or why you should do that, and and we live in this culture where really and truly our faith is under attack. Now, they haven't brought guns into the sanctuary yet and and threatened us at gunpoint, but if you don't believe that the faith, the Christian faith, the gospel, the word of God, the truth, if you don't believe it's under attack, you need to wake up. You need to, to open your eyes and begin to look around you. Because there are arguments and persuasive words and philosophies of men and principles of the world that are being promoted. That are putting so much pressure on people who profess to be Christians that they are beginning to waver and wane. Because it seems so right. I was watching as is my habit on Saturday afternoons or Saturday mornings, we, whenever game time is, I was watching my, my team lose yesterday. And I noticed that one of the sponsors, one of the major sponsors of the telecast was um, was Zales, Jared, and Kay Jewelers. I guess they're all owned by the same company because they, they were all had these commercials and they all had their things there. And I noticed, for instance, on the Zales commercial, they were advertising diamonds and they were advertising wedding rings. And I noticed in the Zales commercial as they were showing these flashes of weddings, and it was this ring that was talked about waiting. Waiting for your loved one waiting for your perfect partner, waiting for your soulmate. In one of the flashes they showed two women in a wedding dress standing at an altar with the pastor uniting two women in marriage. It was just a real quick flash. It was just a real quick scene that went through there. And if you weren't paying attention, you might have missed it. But if you were paying attention, as I was, you also notice that they made it look so normal. They made it look so right. They made it seem just like it's, it's just, what's the problem? And you hear people talk about those issues. Whether it's abortion or whether it's same-sex marriage or whether it's anything that goes contrary to the Word of God. The world has an argument for it that sounds logical. It sounds right according to the world's principles. Now, this is, this is what's important to understand. It's not right according to God and his principles or his word, but it sounds right according to the world's principles. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here, don't be deceived with persuasive words. Don't let anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. If we live our life and we allow our lives, our values, The things we hold dear if we allow those things to be defined by the basic principles of the world it might not be apparent at first but we will end up finding ourselves in a place where we are standing squarely opposed to God and his principles and this is exactly where many in the church have come to today And you've heard it said that our country is divided. And this isn't a political sermon, please understand. There are things being said because there is a divide that exists in our country. But the divide is spiritual. But the world is using all sorts of other arguments trying to couch it in a way to take it out of a spiritual realm because they don't even understand the spiritual nature of the argument so we call it man against woman we call it straight against gay we call it black against white we call it whatever but that's really not what it's about there is a divide and if you if you Christian will look closely you'll begin to see that the divide and the dividing line Is squarely on spiritual issues and that's not an accident that doesn't mean that the people in leadership in our nation have some big conspiracy but there is an enemy of our souls called the devil Satan there are powers and principalities who absolutely have had a conspiracy since before the world was created. To overthrow God, to overthrow His rule. That existed before you existed. That existed before Adam existed. That has not stopped existing. And this is what Paul is telling the believers. Don't be deceived. Don't be sucked in by persuasive word. Don't let the logical sounding arguments, don't let the basic principles of the world and and all of, of its arguments pull you away from the truth. You have to hold on to the truth. You have to stand in truth. You have to be willing to endure the fire. You have to be willing to endure the persecution that will surely come if you are gonna oppose the world and its basic principles. This is Paul's conflict. This is why he wants them to experience the encouragement and the love and the assurance and the understanding and the knowledge and find the treasure that is there in Christ. So that when the fire comes, when the opposition comes, the treasure they have found in Christ is so much greater they're not going to give up. The treasure for the approval of a man. They're not going to give up the truth that is eternal for the temporary celebration or the temporary pat on the back or the temporary affirmation that man can give. Do not be deceived. And he says this to them, do not be deceived. And at the end of that, at verse 10, at the end of this section, he says, and you are complete in him. In other words, there's not something you're going to add to this that's going to make you complete. The world may oppose you and the opposition of the world, and regardless of what the world says about you, doesn't determine whether you are complete or not. So don't try to add things that are going to Make you feel like you're more complete. Know that you are complete, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. Paul is warning them against deception while rejoicing to see their good order and the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Paul encourages them in this. So he tells them, walk rooted and built up in Christ. Walk established in the faith as you have been taught. You notice Paul says, as you have been taught. That means someone's been teaching them. That means they've been learning. A lot of Christians today think that they're going to just get it by osmosis. You're not going to get it just by osmosis. If you don't crack the book open, if you don't hide the word in your heart, you're not going to get it. You can't just put this Bible under your pillow at night and think it's going to absorb into your brain. That's not how it works. It doesn't work that way with anything. And we'll sacrifice, we'll lose sleep, we'll spend time, money, everything we can imagine to learn things that we feel like we have to learn. If I'm going to get my real estate license, I'm going to spend the time, the money, and the effort in order to pass the test. If I'm going to become a doctor, I'm going to spend years and, and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars getting an education so I can pass the test, get the paper, and begin my practice. We could, we could name anything. Be a plumber. Be an electrician. Be an accountant. it's going to require you to learn something. It's going to require you to be taught and for you to learn. But when it comes to spiritual things, we somehow relegate that to something that's not important. We relegate that to a place of I'll do it if I have time. I'll do it when it's convenient. And guess what? Very often we don't have time and it's not convenient. Let me ask you, what is more important than your salvation? And you know the answer to that. The answer is nothing is more important to, to, than my salvation. But, but knowing what the right answer is, is, is not what's most important. It's do you believe that is really true? You know what the right answer is, but do you believe it? And whether we truly believe it or not, is going to be determined by how we live our life. Because I can say I believe something all day long, and I might believe it's true. Here, I might know that's the right answer, but whether I truly believe it, whether I truly trust there is nothing more important than my salvation is going to be determined by how I live my life. And this is why Paul tells them, this is why he writes what he writes. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, verse 6, so walk in him. If you have received him, so walk in him. If you tell me you're a believer, then live like a believer. He tells them to beware. In other words, walk wearing. Beware of empty philosophies. Beware of empty traditions of men. Beware of the world and its principles that want to infiltrate your mind and mold and shape your life. Walk according to Christ. In other words, walk as Christ walked. Value what Christ valued. Give yourself to the things that Christ, to the the very things that Christ gave himself to. What did Christ say? He said, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of him who sent me. I came to do the will of my Father. Christ thought beyond himself. We see this in the prayer he prayed in John 17. He didn't just pray for himself. He didn't just pray for his 12. He prayed for all who would believe through their word. In other words, Christ prayed for us. Here we are, 2,000 plus years on the other side of the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Christ prayed, And we are products of his prayer. That means that Christ, on that night that he was arrested and ultimately taken to be crucified, on that night, Christ didn't just pray for those in his immediate presence or even in the days and weeks and months and years following those events, but Christ prayed for all who would believe to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age, until all are made new in a new heaven and a new earth. And the prayer is still in effect even then, forever and ever and ever. Now what does that, how should that inform us? That should inform us that we should be a people that live our life beyond ourselves. That we do things and we make decisions and we take stands and we weather the storm, not just for us, but for those who will come after us and those who will come after them to a thousand generations. That we're less concerned about whether we're going to see it and experience it in our time, in our life, but we are willing to do whatever it takes to become that stepping stone so that our children and our children's children and generation to generation to generation will experience it. That we have done our part to make sure that it will come to pass. That is walking according to Christ. That is walking in assurance, in full assurance that we are complete in Christ. If we walk through our lives, spend our lives trying to figure out whether we're going to make it to heaven or not because we're not assured of of what Christ has done for us because we somehow think it's been put on our shoulder. This is one reason that we're doing the study we're doing on Sunday morning. We're studying reformers. We're studying the Reformation on Sunday morning. We learned about Martin Luther today. This is why this is so important. Because we need to have an assurance of our salvation so that we can get along in doing the business of the kingdom instead of spending our life and our time worrying about whether we're going to make it or not, trying to earn our way to heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven. But you do have a work that God has called you to do. He created you in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10 says. So we're to walk assured that we are complete in Christ. And we can be assured that we are complete in Christ. Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the head of all principality and power. And we are complete in him because of him, not because of anything that we Have done. Verse 11, Paul writes in him, You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. To be complete in Christ means that our salvation is complete in him. We are no longer in bondage to sin. We have put off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ made without hands. In other words, the old man has been put away. Excuse me. (coughs) The old man has been put away. We have been buried with him. When you bury a dead body, what do you do? You put it away. You leave it. And you move on. This is the picture. The old man was put away. It was buried with him in baptism. The new man is raised up and put on. We have been raised up in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We who... <clears throat> We're dead in sin, have been made alive in the eternal life of the Son of God. We have been forgiven all of our sins. What's happened to them? They've been nailed to the cross with Christ. Everything that was against us has been nailed to the cross. Our enemies have been disarmed. What was the weapon that the enemy used against us? It was the weapon of accusation. Who is Satan? He is the accuser of the brethren. How did Satan come against Adam and Eve? He brought accusation against God. How does he come against us? He brings accusation against us. And until we are in Christ... His accusations are founded. We absolutely are guilty. But when we have been crucified with Christ and the old man has been put away, that old man is gone. He is known no longer. God knows us no longer according to the flesh. We become new creations. We have a new name. We have a new identity. And that identity is righteous and holy before God. There is no accusation that can stick with us because we have been given the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so when he brings the accusation, there is no accusation to bring. That man is dead. How can you judge a dead man? How can you condemn a dead man? He's already dead. He's dead in his sin and he's put away. But we have been raised to new life in Christ And in that redemption that we have in Christ, our enemies have been disarmed. There is no longer any accusation against us. Christ has made a public spectacle of powers and principalities. He has triumphed over them in the cross. That's good news, church. In Christ, our salvation and our victory is complete, as is the defeat of our enemies. Verse 16. Oh, bless you. May you receive your reward from the Lord. Verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding in those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Christ is the substance of our salvation that we now hold to. We resist false humility and the vanity of our fleshly mind that believe our self-righteous deeds or our keeping of the law or any work of the flesh gains us merit with God. It does not. It does not gain us anything with God. Let no one judge you. So what was happening? These Gentile believers had Had these Jewish believers coming to them saying, you've got to keep the feast, you've got to keep the Sabbath, you've got to follow the law, you've got to do all of these things, don't eat this, don't do that. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you in those things. Because those things are a shadow. But Christ is the substance. We have church on Sunday I know people, I have family who go to church on Saturday, who believe that we are in error because we worship on Sunday, because the Sabbath is Saturday. <clears throat> I had lunch with a guy a few weeks ago, and he said, if God told you to go have an affair with another woman, and would you have to go to the Bible to find out? I said, no. I, he said, then, then, uh, then why do you worship on Sunday? because the Bible says to keep the Sabbath holy. And he was trying to use a persuasive argument with me to convince me that we should be having church on Saturday instead of Sunday. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you according to Sabbaths or new moons or what you eat or what you don't eat. Is it because Sabbaths don't matter? No, the Sabbath matters. But what, what, what do we learn? Who is our Sabbath? Who is our rest? Christ is our rest. Are you going to tell me Saturday is more holy than Sunday? Are you going to tell me Monday is less holy? This is the day the Lord has made. Every day is the day the Lord has made. Every day in Christ is a day of rest in a sense. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a day where we set aside. I think you should. I think the Bible is clear. You need to have a day of rest. You need to have that day. The church adopted Sunday because it was the Lord's day. It was the day that Christ was resurrected. I think because Christ ushered in a new creation. And in the new creation, this is the day that we Worship, it is the day of the Lord's resurrection. Now, it's not really about whether Saturday or Sunday, but here's the point. The point is, all of those things were shadows that pointed us to Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. And This is what Paul means, Christ is the substance. We we lived our lives looking at a shadow, watching a shadow coming our way, And when the substance broke into view, we stopped looking to the shadow and now we hold to the substance who is Christ. I'm not grasping at a shadow. Why would I do that when the substance is here? Christ has come. He is the substance that we hold to. We hold fast the head who is Christ, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, Grows with the increase that comes from God. We are to hold fast to Christ. He is the substance of our salvation. We look no longer to those things that are only foreshadows of Christ. Christ has come and now is the very substance of our salvation. In other words, our salvation is in Christ alone. It is by the working of God alone, and it is through faith alone. So we are to trust in no other person and no other thing. We are to trust only in Christ. Verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, if you died with Christ, you have been crucified to the basic principles of this world, you have died to sinful flesh in order to live in the Spirit. That's what Christ has given you the power to do. Christ has given you the power to die to sinful flesh in order that you may live in the Spirit. You couldn't do that without Christ. Your will, your efforts, your working, your discipline cannot deliver you from the sinful indulgence of the flesh. In fact, it's only inflaming it. And you become proud about your self-control. You become proud about your good behavior. You become self-righteous because you're able to manage your sinfulness better than other people are. And you think your well-managing of sinfulness somehow makes you more righteous, but in reality, it makes you nothing of the sort. In fact, those... Men that Jesus encountered, we can see it recorded in Matthew 23 and John chapter 8. He railed against them more than he railed against the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Because they were so inflamed in their flesh and their self-righteousness in thinking that they had done something to add to what only God could do, Jesus put them in their place. And so this is what Paul is saying. These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Subjecting yourself to regulations and doctrines of men have no... They have an appearance of wisdom, but they have no power to actually do anything. Subjecting yourself to regulations and doctrines of men have no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, legalism is just as sinful as licentiousness. You can be, in your mind, in complete control to the point that you are considered righteous and very much so. Compare that to the person who's, in your view, out of control you, you are just as sinful as they are. The Pharisees were just as sinful as the prostitutes were. Legalism is just as sinful as licentiousness. And both have no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They just indulge it in different directions. The prostitutes in the ditch on one side of the road and the Pharisees in the ditch on the other side of the road. But they're both in the ditch. And they're not in the way. Therefore, if you died with Christ, then live like it. Walk in his life. Walk as children of light. In Christ, you now have the power to walk in the spirit. You now have the power to no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. You didn't have that until you came to be in Christ. You couldn't do that until God gave you his spirit and set you free from the law of sin and death. This is what Paul writes in Romans. In Christ, you now have the power to walk in the Spirit and no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. So here's my charge to you, church, that you hold fast to Christ who is our head that you not trust in things having only an appearance of wisdom and humility, that you not trust in the basic principles of this world, but that you trust in Christ, that you trust in his word, that you trust in his ways, even when the world and its way appears right, but it is not. Hold fast and know that Christ has triumphed over his enemies, even the ones still appearing victorious in our sight. Walk by faith, not by sight. Walk as children of light and give glory to the King of glory. Amen.